First Samuel chapter 11 is where we are. We left off before the Christmas break in First uh, Samuel chapter 10. And if you're new to our Wednesday night study, we go uh, straight through the Bible uh, like we do on Sunday mornings, but just a different book. And on Wednesday nights, we're in the book of First Samuel. So we're going to pick up at chapter 11, where we left off uh, several weeks ago. And uh, I'm also going to be mindful of the time because at the end of the teaching, before the conclusion of the service, we're going to share communion together. So that's part of our service tonight. Uh, but it is uh, good to be back with you in the house of the Lord as we resume our study through uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, for the sake of those of you who are new to our study, or to remind those of you who are regulars of our study, since we've had such a bless you. I, uh, for, for our sake, I'm going to uh, give a little bit of a recap uh, where we are and, <laughs> after I disinfect, and then, uh, we, and then we'll jump right into our study. But let's first pray. Lord, it's, it's good to be in your house. It's good to just settle ourselves before you and to be mindful, Lord, uh, that uh, you are great and mighty and to be praised, that there is none like you. Lord, you are matchless. And so we just exalt you in your house tonight. We praise you. We thank you. Uh, Lord, we do pray for there to be some unity amongst the chaos in Washington right now. We lift up all of our elected leaders, Lord, and we thank you that you are supreme and on the throne. Uh, No matter who might have political power, Lord, you are the sovereign power of the universe. And so we, but we do lift up, Lord, the men and women who serve us um, locally, in our state, and in our nation. And uh, we do pray for them tonight, Lord. Give them wisdom. And be with us, Lord, as we share in your word together tonight. And it's good, even as the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It is good to be here and in your presence. Guide us in our study tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So again, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our study or who need to be reminded where we are, this is a bleak period in Israel's history. Uh, They are transitioning from a theocracy where God is supreme as their king, and they're moving to a form of government that is basically a monarchy where they have an earthly king. They have opted for an earthly king instead of the sovereign king of the universe And these are the four things I put on the screen that led to this shift from a theocracy to a monarchy. Number one, they had become disappointed with spiritual leadership. Number two, they had become dissatisfied with being different, that is different from the other nations, the pagan nations around them. Number three, they had become distant from God. And number four, they had become distracted by worldly influences. And so all of these things culminated in their desire to have an earthly king. They looked at the pagan nations around them and they thought that that was a better way to be governed than to be directly governed by God or through the prophets uh, that God had raised up or the judges that God had raised up to lead them. And um, again, this was basically motivated from their desire to be like the people around them. It's a very terrible desire that even we as Christians today can sometimes struggle with. And how many of you understand that it's okay to be different, right? Like, like we are to be separate. We are to be called according to God's purposes. And holiness, by definition, means we are separated. We are called 
to be like our Lord. And so that means at times we're going to be very different from the culture and the world around us. That said, we can't separate ourselves in the sense that we no longer have impact or influence. We are only to separate ourselves in terms of the way that the culture thinks, the way the culture operates, the way the culture believes, and the philosophies of this, of this world. And we are to live like the Lord without completely disengaging from the very people that we are trying to influence for the Lord. And so the Israelites are guilty of this. They're like, you know, we don't really want to live under God's standards. Um, you know, the law is pretty heavy. Uh, we, we, we like to live uh, kind of free and fancy like the cultures around us, and they have earthly kings, and that's what we want. And, and so the, the Israelites ended up uh, adopting this uh, monarchy instead of a theocracy, and God, God gave them what they wanted. And it isn't because God uh, bent to their uh, evil wishes, it's just that how many of you realize that sometimes God will give us what we want in order to show us that what we really need is Him? And sometimes through the struggles of getting what we want, uh, it'll be in those times that we really see our desperate need for the Lord. And so God, uh, not in a moment of weakness, but in a moment of teaching them you really want to be like the pagan nations around you? You really want a king like they have? Fine, I'll let you have a king, and then we'll see how well it goes for you. And so God says to Samuel the prophet, who is the last of the judges of Israel, for 500 years they had been under God's theocracy through a judge. God says to Samuel, go ahead and anoint a king. Give them what they want, and they'll begin to see how well it goes for them. And so God tells Samuel, they have not rejected you as the prophet. They have rejected me as king. So I want you to go ahead and anoint an earthly king. And so Samuel uh, anoints the man that God chose uh, for, for this hour. And God chose the man Saul. His name in Hebrew is Shaul. Uh, Shaul uh, translates asked or prayed for. And uh, so uh, Saul is going to serve as the first king of Israel. And um, just real briefly, uh, where we left off last time, uh, we read in uh, chapter 10 that, actually 8, 9, and 10 leading up to Saul's coronation, that Saul uh, was characterized by a few different things in, in the Bible. Number one, it says that he was tall. In fact, it says he was a head taller than anyone else. Now, as I mentioned at the time, the average height, according to archaeologists who have recovered skeletal remains. The average height of a man back in that day was somewhere between 5'4 and 5'6. So it wasn't that he's probably 7'5. You know, he's, he might have simply been 6 feet, and, but in that day that would have been like a head taller than the common the average height of a man in the day. But nevertheless, it mentions that because he stands out literally head and shoulders above uh, anybody else. And it also says that he was handsome, and it says specifically, more handsome than anyone else. It, it is kind of uncanny how God chooses tall and good-looking people to serve him. I've never really... <laughs> anyway, maybe he skipped over me. But, um, but it also says in the passage that he was from a wealthy, influential family. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And this part is commendable, although he starts out this way, but he doesn't finish this way. He was a reluctant leader. He really didn't want the job. <clears throat> and um, people who often, you know, want the job uh, often run into roadblocks. Um, 
you know, case in point, what's happening right now. But, um, but, but this is the kind of guy Saul was. He's like, you know, I, I, I don't really want to do this. Um, uh, is there anybody else? It, it is interesting in the Bible when you look at people like Moses and Gideon and Saul and other people like them, that the people God often uses are the reluctant people. And, um, and for good reason, because people who are so full of themselves that they think they're going to help God out uh, will often steal the glory from God. And so God will often do extraordinary things through ordinary people. So don't ever discount yourself. If you think, oh, I'm just this or I'm just that, whatever that label might be, uh, you could exactly be the person God is looking for. Uh, because often he will do his extraordinary work through ordinary people. Because why? And then he gets more of the glory. And that's what it's all about, giving God the glory, making sure that he receives all the glory. And so Saul was this reluctant leader. He's like, okay, you know, and in fact, when Samuel goes to announce him to the people, he's hiding. He's hiding literally among the baggage, it says at the end of chapter 10. He's just, he's just hiding like in this fetal position, hoping nobody will see him when Samuel calls him out to be introduced among the people. And so that's this guy. Unfortunately, he doesn't end as well as he began. He will end up becoming um, very full of himself, very paranoid. Um, He will resort to trying to eliminate people that he thinks are a threat to his reign as king of Israel, including, and not limited to, his own son, Jonathan. He'll try to kill his own son, Jonathan. Uh, He'll try to kill David when the people find David to be more popular than, than Saul. He becomes a very tormented man, literally tormented. We're going to see as we get further into his life story that he's literally tormented by demons. And the only relief he gets is when David plays worship music. And so it's unfortunate, but it is a reminder to us to finish well. Because Saul had it backwards. He began well, but he didn't finish well. You know what God cares about? God does not care so much about how well you start. It's how well you finish. There's a lot of us who have, you know, stories that aren't good stories about the beginning of our lives. And when we first come into relationship with Jesus, you know, a lot of our lives are pretty colorful. And and that's not what God is concerned about because Jesus died for our colorful pasts, right? What he wants is us to finish well. And Saul was just the opposite. He starts well, but he finishes poorly. And, but this is the guy that for the moment, for the hour that God has chosen. Now, not everybody likes this guy. Uh, At the end of chapter 10, let me read so that we can kind of get a running start into chapter 11. But at the end of chapter 10, verse 25, it says, then Samuel explained to the people, the behavior of royalty. So like Samuel is trying to explain to everybody, here's what, here's what a king is supposed to look like. Here's how he's supposed to behave. And he wrote it in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us And so they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. In other words, you know that old saying, like, you know, hold your tongue. Like, that's what it means. Hold hold your peace. Like, don't, 
you know, don't try to make matters worse by stuff you might say or do. So Saul was liked by most, but not by all, which is common. You know, not everybody's going to like you. There's going to be some people who, are, who like you and are loyal to you and other people who, who don't like you at all. Okay, you know, the most important thing is, are, are you pleasing the Lord? That's the only audience we really have to always be focused on pleasing. Now, the ones who rebelled against him, they didn't like him, they despised him. We're going to see, uh, I think it's in this chapter, it might be chapter 11. Um, yeah, it's going to be still in chapter 11, um, that those guys are going to come back into play here and Saul's going to actually spare their lives. So let's jump into chapter 11, where it says this, then Nahash, Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Okay, pause for a moment. In my Bible, this chapter is entitled, Saul Saves Jabesh Gilead. I think really the title should be, Saul's Leadership Gets Tested. And here's what happens. Nahash, who is a king of the Ammonites, uh, is going to come against the, the, the people of Jabesh Gilead, and he's basically going to threaten them with war. Now, the Ammonites lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you looked at a map today, it would be in the country of Jordan. Uh, and Nahash is coming against the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead is also on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you remember when God allotted the land to the 12 tribes of Israel, Two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, asked if they could uh, live on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which again today is modern Jordan. And they were given permission to do that. So Jabesh Gilead is located on the eastern side of the Jordan River, uh, like halfway between the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. They're, They're like right in the middle. But because they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they're separated from the other nine and a half tribes who will come to your defense if some foreign king comes against you. Well, you got a, you got a river that's dividing, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel here, nine and a half and, and three and a half. So, um, and two, nine and a half and two and a half. My math's not good. I'm just a pastor. And so um, the king of Ammon is on that eastern side. So Jabesh Gilead, those people are vulnerable because they're on the eastern side where Ammon is. The, the, the nation of Ammon. So here comes Nahash. Now keep this in mind. Nahash in Hebrew means serpent. Serpent. Because there's, there's going to be a few parallels that I draw here from chapter 11 with you. So keep that in mind. Because here comes the enemy. Here comes the serpent. Right? And he comes to the men of Jabesh Gilead. And the men say to him, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Uh, they're weak from day one. They basically say, let's enter a treaty with you so that you don't kill us. Can we have a treaty? That's what they mean here by covenant. And here comes this strange treaty. Look at verse 2. And the Hash, the Ammonite, answered them, on this condition, I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Okay? It's like, I don't want to poke out both your eyes, just your right eye. Now, why the right eye? Because a lot of times in warfare, using arrows, if you're drawing an arrow, depending on if you're left-handed or right-handed, you're going to focus on one eye or the other, but the predominant eye is going to be the right eye. And so we're going to eliminate the possibility that you might ever come against us in warfare. We'll poke out your right eye, and then we'll let you live. 
Okay? Now, what's even worse than that suggestion is that they say in verse 3, Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, like on the other side of the Jordan River. And then, if there's no one to save us, we will come out to you. Like, you go ahead and cut out our right eye. Like, this, this is a bizarre treaty here. But, you know, desperate people do things when they're in desperate situations, which is often bad. Like, when we're in desperate situations, we often resort to desperate things that we shouldn't. And, and here's, here's one principle drawn from this scene here, for those of you taking notes. Okay, we're just three principles from chapter 11. If we get into chapter 12 tonight, I've got another one in chapter 12. But here's the first one. The enemy actively works to take away your ability to see things clearly. It's called deception. The enemy works actively to take away our ability to see things clearly. We have to really be on our guard because the enemy is always trying to blind us just a little bit, not entirely, just to deceive us enough. And so we have to be vigilant about this. This picture here of Nahash, the serpent, the enemy, is coming against the people, saying to them, it'll go well with you if you just allow me to poke out your right eye. And they actually entertain the idea. Now, why Nahash agrees to let them have a week to try to find out if people will come to their aid. That's also a mystery. But read on with me, verse 4. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. So Again, the, the guys on Jabesh Gilead, they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They send a messenger over to the western side to appeal to their brothers. And there Saul is, you know, working. He's in the fields. He's with the herds and he comes to hear, why is everybody crying? They tell him what's going on. And it says, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. Here's principle number two. Righteous anger is a necessary response to the enemy's evil tactics. We got to get bold about this. When the enemy works hard, we have to pray even harder. And it's okay to be angry. You're not angry at a person. You're angry at the enemy, at Satan, who is trying to rip people off constantly. So when you see things happening in your family, when you see things happening in your nation, when you see things happening at work, when you see things happening in the schools, it's okay to be angry about that, to have this righteous indignation. Not to resort to something, you know, foolish or violent, but to at least be stirred up in your spirit with this righteous indignation enough that you're not just going to sit this out. This needs your involvement. You need to be engaged. And if nothing else, you need to be on your knees before God and praying and praying until you're all prayed out. Because as relentless as the enemy is going to be, we need to be just as relentless. Be as relentless. And so Saul's angry here. And for good reason. He's like, I'm not going to let the enemy come against our brothers like this. We're not going to stand by and watch our brothers and our sisters get slaughtered by the enemy. No. 
And so it says in verse 7, so he took a yoke of men, of oxen, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. So, like, they're in unity here. They're like, yes, we got to do this. we got to fight for our brothers and our sisters. And verse 8, when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel, listen to this, were 300,000, and the men of Judah, the southern territory, was 30,000. So check this out. 330,000 fighting men came out. It's like, we are not going to be silent here. Our brothers and our sisters are, are going to be uh, injured and harmed by the enemy. And so we're going to fight. And they come out 330,000 strong, verse 9, and they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, like in the afternoon, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. I bet they were. We're going to keep our right eyes. And therefore, verse 19, the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, and it's implied said to Nahash of the Ammonites, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. Okay? So they're buying some time because the messenger said that the 330,000 are going to get there tomorrow. So the, the Jabesh-Gilead guys go out to Nahash and say, okay, we'll come out. We'll come out tomorrow. We'll come out tomorrow. So they're buying a little time here. In verse 11, so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. Now, the morning watch is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they're still under the cover of darkness. Here comes Saul and, and the army of Israel. And they killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. So here they come, early morning hours, until the heat of the day, until the afternoon. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. No two Ammonites were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Okay, remember the rebellious guys at the end of chapter 10? So now because Saul has given this, you know, great demonstration of his leadership led them in this victory over the Ammonites. Now everybody's like, who are those guys back in chapter 10 who didn't like him being king? Let's bring them out. Let's bring them out. Why do they want to bring them out? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, now notice this is another mark of his leadership here. Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Notice how he gives praise to God. He says, I I didn't do this. God did this. So again, he starts out very humble here. And it says in verse 14, And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Circle Gilgal. Talk about it in a minute. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, notice this with me. They have this great victory. Uh, Saul wants to make sure the people understand this is really the victory that God has provided. And so Samuel the prophet 
who had anointed Saul back in chapter 10, verse 1, the first part of chapter 10, Saul's already been anointed. I mean, literally, like anointed. Samuel the prophet took oil in a flask and poured it over Saul's head, which up until that point had only been done for priests. When priests were called by God to serve God in the temple and they were separated for the duty of being priests, they were anointed with oil. And oil in the Bible, no doubt it was olive oil, oil in the Bible is uh, shemen in Hebrew. Uh, Oil in the Bible is symbolic of the presence of God, often symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so even though there wasn't anything magical in the oil itself, It was poured out on the heads of priests and now the first king of Israel to mark them as belonging to God, that they shall now be filled with the very presence of God. And so Samuel had already anointed Saul as king of Israel, but now there is this public gathering for his national coronation. And they choose Gilgal. Samuel says, I want us to go to Gilgal. Now, let me tell you what is so important about that particular place. If you remember back in the story of the Exodus, and then when we got into the book of Joshua, the children of Israel have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. When God had mercy on them and heard their cries that went up to heaven under the labor of their taskmasters, God had mercy on the Israelites, on the Hebrew slaves, and he raised up Moses as a deliverer, as a prophet. And Moses leads the people of Israel uh, after a long series of, you know, 10 plagues and uh, Pharaoh being reluctant and all of that, leads them out of, the, out, of the, out of Egypt through the wilderness. And then when they get to the border of the promised land and they come a very circuitous route because of their disobedience. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Moses is now replaced by Joshua. And Joshua is going to bring the people into Israel, coming from the east in Jordan, crossing over the Jordan River, going east to west into the promised land. And when they crossed the Jordan River, when Joshua led the people into the promised land, now remember, None of them had ever, had ever been there because for 400 years, they had been slaves in Egypt. So this is the very first time they're coming into the promised land, this generation. And the very first place that they encamp in the promised land is Gilgal. And a few things happen at Gilgal. Number one, the first time that they celebrate the Passover, which they had not celebrated for hundreds of years. Well, they celebrated the Passover as part of their exodus when they marked the doors of their homes. But otherwise, Passover had not been practiced until they get into the promised land. They're at Gilgal. And the first Passover in the promised land, they celebrated Gilgal. What else happens at Gilgal? All the men are circumcised because all the generation of men that grew up during the wilderness wanderings had never been circumcised according to the covenant that God gave to Abraham. They were circumcised at Gilgal. It also tells us that the first place that the tabernacle resided, which was this mobile temple before the temple was built in Jerusalem, the tabernacle resided at Gilgal for a long time until it was moved to Shiloh. So here you have this place. In addition, the fourth thing that happened at Gilgal was God told the Israelites 
Take a stone out of the Jordan River, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and set 12 stones at Gilgal as a reminder that you crossed over the Jordan River, that I delivered you out of slavery into the promised land. So Gilgal was a very historic place for them. Place of the first Passover, place where the men were circumcised, place where the tabernacle was, and place where this pillar was placed of these stones as a memorial, as a testimony of the faithfulness of God. And Samuel the prophet says, we're going to go back there when we coronate Saul as the national king. And why is that so important? And it's principle number three from chapter 11. It is always a good thing when we return to the place of our first love. This was that place when they came into the promised land that reminded them of their relationship with the Lord. And those various aspects, the Passover, a reminder of the Lord and the shed blood of the Lamb, the circumcision, this covenant, that we are a covenant people belonging to God. The tabernacle was there. This is the place where we first worship the Lord in the promised land. These are the stones that marked what the Lord did for us, his faithfulness. And Samuel's like, we're going to go back there so we can remember our first love. That's where we're going to crown Saul as king. And it speaks to me in the sense that there are times when you and I will We'll wander. You know that old hymn, prone to wander, Lord. You know, and it's good for us sometimes to just kind of recalibrate. And, you know, I don't know if it necessarily means you have to literally go to the place where you first had an an encounter and a relationship with Jesus. But I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some sentimental place that you can literally go and be reminded of when you first fell in love with Jesus. But if nothing else... Maybe you can't go there physically or literally, but it's good sometimes for us just to take time in our lives to just, you know, come before the Lord and revisit in our hearts and in our minds the place where we first encountered Him. That time when He was first so real to us, that moment when we first prayed that prayer to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, because you know what begins to happen when we run this race? We become weary. And we can sometimes become discouraged. And we sometimes pick up the dirt and the filth of the world along the race. And, and we can get years into our relationship with the Lord and look back and say to ourselves sometimes, you know, I, I wasn't, I'm not as close as I used to be. I've drifted. I've wandered. I, I'm getting involved in some things I shouldn't. And I want to get back to that place where it was fresh and where it was real and where I first encountered the Lord. That's your Gilgal moment. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's good sometimes to revisit. Lord, I remember when. Lord, help me to get back to that place when I first fell in love with you. You know, you read the letters to the church of Revelation. Jesus calls out the church of Ephesus because they had left their first love. They had forgotten the Lord. They had gotten so busy doing life that they forgot their relationship with Him. There's a reason why Samuel said, we're going back to Gilgal, because we're going to go back to where all this started so we can remind ourselves why we're here and how good and faithful the Lord is. So revisit your Gilgal from time to time. 
Go back in your heart and in your mind, and maybe literally you can go back to that place just for a short visit to remind yourself of the goodness and the faithfulness of God when you first fell in love with Him. And so into chapter 12, it says, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. So Samuel, this is kind of his swan song. Um, He's basically letting people know, look, I'm old and you've rejected the Lord and I'm the the last of the judges. Um, He says, but I want you to evaluate my life and, you know, accuse me if there's anything I've ever done wrong. I haven't cheated anybody. I haven't stolen from anybody. I've tried to be a man who walks with integrity. Go ahead, examine my life. So he says this in his old age as he is basically going to hand the baton. Now, now, you know, Israel will still need the prophets of God. All through the period of the monarchy, you get into the period of the kings. I mean, the prophets are essential to speak to the kings of the day, because often the kings go off the rail, and the prophets are there there to challenge them, exhort them, and encourage them, and get them back on track. But But Samuel here is this prophet and the last judge of Israel. He knows, like, look, this is a transitioning time. I'm old, and, and I'm ready to, to fade off the scene here. But, he, but before he goes, he's like, listen, you know, I, I've tried to walk with integrity before you and before the Lord. And, and they verify it. They, verse 4, and they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. And then Samuel said to the people, Now, I'm going to read this uh, down to verse 17. It's a a speech. The whole thing's a speech that Samuel gives. But I want you to underline, if you have a pen or pencil handy, or if you have an electronic Bible, like highlight, I want you to highlight the names that Samuel mentions. There's a reason I'm I'm asking you to do that. As Samuel revisits their own history, he's going to kind of summarize some of the history of Israel, and I want you to note the, the different people that he mentions, So verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob, there's another name, when Jacob had gone into Egypt And your fathers cried out to the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, their their names repeated, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor. Now, by the way, I'm only asking you to underline names that he commends in the history of Israel. So you don't need to underline Sisera. Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and, he, and said, We have sinned 
because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent, you can underline these names, Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, Badan, Badan is a strange, it's the only time that name appears in the Bible. Some people think it is a it, it, it's a, a, a mistranslation of the, of the Hebrew that it should say Barak. So we don't really know the name of this, but it's a judge. So Jerubbaal, which is Gideon, Badan or Barak, Jephthah, these are all judges, and Samuel. You can underline all those names. So Samuel even mentions himself. The Lord raised up those different judges, among others, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king, small case, and I was talking about Saul. You just write Saul's name in there. Here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father's. All right, pause there for a moment. Um, this, is, this is the majority of his speech. And he's, he's trying to make this point, and here's his point. He's saying, look, let me revisit our own history with you. God was faithful to do this. God was faithful to do this. God was faithful to do this and to do this. And he used different men to accomplish his purposes. By the way, in the history of Israel, it wasn't always men, but in this conversation, he mentions just certain men. And he says, I just want you to know, he says, myself included, because he puts himself in the list. He goes, you know, God raised up all these different people, Moses and Aaron and Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and, and myself. And now God's raised up a king. It's not his best for you, but this is what you wanted. You're going to find out just how lacking this earthly king is. But nevertheless, God is using people to accomplish his good purposes. But Samuel's saying, but I just want you to know, even though God has raised up these different individuals, it has always been and always will be God behind these human vessels. That God is at work. And don't you ever forget that it is God who is at work. So here's the principle that I want us to see here from chapter 12. God who is unseen works through people who are seen. Nevertheless, keep your eyes on Him instead of them. Amen? It's very important. Don't get your eyes on earthly vessels. Get your eyes on the Lord who is behind. Yes, God does use people, and God uses imperfect people. A perfect God uses imperfect people. And never forget that when great things happen, it's not those people, it is God using those people who, who is accomplishing these great things. And so notice the next thing that he says there, verse, verse 16, he says, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. You might want to mark in the margin of your Bible there, 2 Corinthians 4.18. Because notice, Samuel is saying, I want you to see something here. See this. What are we seeing? 
Well, God's at work here. Can you see this? And here's what 2 Corinthians 4.18 says. It says, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For that which is seen is temporal, but that which is unseen is eternal. So he says, I want you to see with spiritual eyes here what the Lord, the unseen God of the universe, is doing behind the scenes using seen people to accomplish his purposes. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the earthly people, the vessels, but on what is unseen. We fix our eyes on the Lord because that which is seen is temporal, but that which is unseen is eternal, 2 Corinthians 4.18. And so let's, let's just finish out this chapter and then, and then we'll share communion together. And so he says, I want you to see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Verse 17, is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. And so Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. I mean, yeah, I bet they did because Samuel's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray right now. And God's going to give confirmation that you've been wicked in asking for a king. And so he prays and all of a sudden rain and like thunder, lightning. And so verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God. Notice, not our God. See how distant their heart was from the Lord? They're like, Samuel, you know, you have a relationship with him. Pray to the Lord your God. Very sad they didn't say our God. That we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. But notice the mercy of the Lord. Verse 20, then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside... For then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver. No show of hands. Have you ever gone after empty things that you realize turned out to not really satisfy? He says, for they are nothing. Empty things that people go after. They're nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Underline that. We might be unfaithful to the Lord at times, but he is never unfaithful to us. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. And you've got to love this. It, in their wickedness, God still had not forsaken them. In our sinfulness, God does not abandon us. But he longs for us to return to him. Moreover, Samuel says, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Amen. But if you still do wickedness, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. In other words, there's always a chance for you. Like God is merciful. In all of your sinfulness and wickedness and disobedience against God, you know what? He's never abandoned you. He's never forsaken you. He still wants relationship with you. God is a merciful God. He says, but I got to be honest with you. 
Like God doesn't like tolerate wickedness forever. There is a day of reckoning and accountability for every single one of us. God's justice demands because of his holiness that he punish wickedness. But isn't it wonderful to know that all of our wickedness was placed on Jesus so that by his sacrifice on the cross, we might be forgiven and experience the mercy of God. Amen? Which leads us right into communion now. So let's pray, and the worship team is going to come, and ushers, you can come as I pray. And let's just prepare our hearts to receive communion this evening. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that you died for all our wickedness, that placed on Jesus was all of our sin and all of our shame, all of our guilt. That Jesus died for all of us, Lord, so that we wouldn't have to suffer the consequences for our own sins. And we're thankful for that. You show your mercy there in the Old Testament. How much greater is your mercy now? The people acknowledged their wickedness and still you did not forsake them. You were patient with them. Thank you, Lord, for being so patient with us. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on a cross for our sins. May we never forget what you've done for us. This is kind of our Gilgal moment right now where we, just in our hearts, we return to that place where you met us at the cross. So merciful toward us, so gracious that you would die for us. So thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much that you would lay down your life for the sins of the world. And as we are about to partake in a moment, we just come thankful, grateful for the cross, for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name.